the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Okay, so welcome to episode 13 of the Forward Together podcast. My name is Jared Dean. I'm joined as always by Paul Gosling. Paul, how are you today? I'm as good as always. Good stuff, good stuff. So, these next two episodes that we have lined up are conversations with Colin Harvey and with Julianne Cor Johnson. And what we're going to be, what the focus of these conversations is, is a human rights bill for Northern Ireland. Paul, Colin's first, Colin's first up this week and talks about the importance of human rights in a Northern Ireland context. And I think the importance of moving beyond just the basic human rights that people might expect. Yes, I, I, and we obviously have to have this conversation in the context that there was an understanding, an expectation coming out of the Good Friday Agreement that we would have had a Bill of Rights by now. And the fact that we haven't shows how contentious it is. And probably it's reasonable to assume that one of the reasons why it's so contentious is that rights, while we want to think of them as being objective, there is a level of subjectivity in terms of what do we regard as rights. So to what extent is the economy part of the rights conversation? To what extent do you have a right to a job? To what extent do you have a right to a home? To what extent do you have a right to good health care? And I think mm. we saw that conversation take place as part of the recent general election in Ireland where health and housing were very much the, the main political discussion points where you you might say that a lot of the electorate believe that there's a fundamental human right and expectation of a government to deliver good health service and housing. Yeah, and I suppose there's a, a bit of a move that's taken place as well recently as part of the new decade, new approach deal that's taken place. So there's renewed energy for this conversation at the Assembly. Absolutely, uh, there is. Uh, the Assembly is actively talking about it and New Decade, New Approach, yes, uh, that included quite a lot of things that would be part of what people who support a rights-based approach would, would want to see as, as recognised human rights. Mm, okay, well, let's hear the conversation with Colin now. You're a Professor of Human Rights. I mean, what do you regard as the, as the core human rights? Well, I... I if we're talking about a, a conversation about the, the here and the now and in the future, I think, first of all, it's important that human rights feature centrally in, in the discussion, both about you know, the, the future of the island of Ireland, but also in the, in, in the here and now. And I think there's a real risk that if those working in the areas of human rights and equality and social justice you know, d don't engage in the conversation about the constitutional future, that, there's a real risk of being excluded from that. I think a big issue at the moment in relation to, you know, the island, north and south, is socioeconomic rights. You know, if you look at what's driving politics on both bits of the island now, I think it's real concerns about issues of healthcare and housing and sort of basic social and economic rights. And I think, you know, there's a real chance here to try to make sure that socioeconomic rights on the island are no longer second-class rights, both now and in the future. Yeah, and we've seen that played out in terms of the general election in the Republic, of course. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these things are pretty subjective uh, and politically contentious. I mean, as you say, socioeconomic rights and also yeah. environmental rights and also in the yeah. context of COVID-19, health yeah. rights, because we've seen this really big 
uh, inequality between those parts of the world that are unable to deal with the threat and uh, the very few countries that have been able to take it in their stride. So a lot of these things are really pretty subjective, aren't they? But very profound. Well, I, I'm not so sure about, about that, you know, and, and the reason I say that is that, you know, there are a range of international human rights standards in relation to socioeconomic rights, with that, which actually both states, UK and Ireland, have, have signed up to. If you look at the, the Bill of Rights from 2008, submitted by the Human Rights Commission, that, that included a sort of suite of socioeconomic rights in it as well. And actually include environmental rights too, and also the Constitutional Convention, you know, the report from the Constitutional Convention that recommended that the Irish Constitution be amended to include these things. I think there's there's often more of an appetite out there among the general public for these sorts of, if you like, bread and butter human rights issues to feature in, in legal instruments than, than people sometimes acknowledge. They are sometimes politically controversial, often political parties particularly react negatively. But when you go out to speak to the public, you know, you find it remarkable, often particularly in the Northern context here, you know, cross community support for some of these basic social and economic rights to find legal protection. That's that's a very interesting view. I mean, clearly it is politically contentious and yeah. there is this disconnect between what you might regard as fundamental human rights and the reality on the ground. I mean, in the South, you can see the, the lack of equality in healthcare provision and in the North, you can see the lack of actual delivery in terms of what people expect from the National Health Service. And you've also got the issues around the fact that companies would regard themselves as having the right to produce certain levels of toxins in our atmosphere, uh, which might breach other people's environmental and health rights. I think really we need to, to shift the conversation to, to see, particularly in the context of, of healthcare, the conversation we're having right now, but in the future, that healthcare is a human right that needs to be solidly underpinned by legal guarantees. You know, the debate around climate change and climate justice, again, we need to move well beyond sort of rhetoric and warm words that, that, that the, the sort of state through charitable giving, if you like, discourse will sort of uh, accord these things. I think these have to be framed in rights-based terms. And if, you know, one thing comes out of the conversation on the island at the moment, I hope that, that, that when we are through all this, that we sit down and have a proper conversation about how the socio-economic rights that people value so much in times of crisis and emergency are properly reflected in law, policy and practice uh, north and south. I think if people want to see that, I think it's time for delivery, both in the north and in the south. We can see that that debate is, is moving in that direction, both north and south and in much of Europe as well, in terms yeah. of, and probably also in the United States, it will shift this sense of, well, people deserve to have access to affordable or free of point of delivery healthcare. But there are other issues which it becomes much more contentious in a way, perhaps, or not within the main political discourse around social and economic rights. And do, does someone have the right to a job? Well, I think what, what we have to do is, is differentiate a, a, a few things. For, first of all, I think it's important to recognise uh, socioeconomic rights as human rights, including employment rights. But one of the great myths about human rights law and human rights practice is that, that 
that, that there are often balancing exercises that go on within those human rights instruments, that not all human rights are absolute, and there will be balances to be undertaken. But I think the starting point has to be better recognition in law of the fact that these are basic human rights that people need to have. And I think human rights advocates, equality advocates, social justice advocates on this island, but actually in Europe and globally, need to do a much better job at winning that argument. That's not to say that human rights protections will deliver utopia. They won't. They're, they're really a starting point. They've got to be utilised in practice. But I think we've all got to try and agree that these things are basic human rights that have to be reflected in law. For example, I still think the North needs a Bill of Rights with socio and economic rights in it. And you know, what better time, in a sense, to be having that conversation both now and in the years ahead, making sure that healthcare is not really left to the discretion of politicians, if you like, but is more firmly rooted in human rights principles and guarantees. Now, clearly, if we focus for a moment still on the economic issues, I mean, quite clear that we don't have equality of outcome in terms of employment uh, because we have differentials in terms of the levels of the employment rate and unemployment rate and economic inactivity and income. So clearly, we're starting from the base in Northern Ireland that there are these widespread inequalities. And in a sense, it was expected that the Good Friday Agreement would address much of that. And of course, the Good Friday Agreement talked about the creation of a Bill of Rights. So do you want to talk us through a bit about what the Good Friday Agreement said and what you expected it to deliver in terms of a Bill of Rights? Well, first of all, the, the agreement, I think, held out a clear promise that, that, that we just, it wouldn't be a shared society only, but it would be a shared and better society. And that would include a number of things, including better human rights protection. Now, one of the things in there was uh, it started a Bill of Rights process whereby the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission was to submit advice to the British government. It did so on the 10th of December 2008. Uh, it made a number of recommendations. And, and here we are sitting, what, you know, a, a long time, more than a decade later, and we still haven't had that Bill of Rights delivered. Now, what we see at the moment is there's an ad hoc assembly committee that's meeting to, to, to renew and revisit that conversation. So I think, you know, it's long overdue that we had a Bill of Rights here, but I think it's time for people to join that conversation. You know, a conversation focused on not just having, you know, shared institutions and relative stability here, but actually the creation of of a better society here, a more equal society. And if anything, this COVID-19 emergency, you know, you've heard, Paul, the, the language of we're all in it together, but what it's highlighted is the highly differentiated nature of society, you know, that, that, that marginalized vulnerable people suffer the most in crises like this. So I think really it's about delivering on the promise of the Good Friday Agreement for the creation of a better society. And as you know, and I think people listening to this will know that is work in progress. We all know that more equal societies are happier societies, they're better societies. So I think we have to work harder to deliver on that. And what would you like to see included in a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland? Well, I think, you know, I, I'll declare an interest here. I was on the Human Rights Commission in 2008 when Monica McWilliams was the chair of that, chief commissioner of that uh, commission at the time. I was involved in the process of drafting the advice. I stand over the inclusion of socioeconomic rights in 
Bill of Rights advice. You know, not everyone agreed with that, but I think it was a, the right call. Looking around at international instruments, looking at comparative experience around the world of what other people are doing, uh, you know, it, it's it's simply logical to include to conclude that this society needs to see enhanced socio-economic rights protection. And what struck me, and really just to repeat the point, you know, when people have talked to others, there's clear cross-community support for these rights to be included in a human rights document. So I hope that the current process that is ongoing uh, within the Northern Ireland Assembly will finally deliver on this promise for a Bill of Rights that's not just a minimalist Bill of Rights, but that's a, an ambitious Bill of Rights. Because one of the things that frustrates me about the social justice conversation here in this region is that, you know, people talk about being ambitious for investment. They talk about being ambitious for all sorts of things in relation to the language around business. But let me ask this to you, Paul, and to your, to your listeners as well. Why can't we be ambitious here for human rights, equality and social justice? So let's use the opportunity that we now have to do that. Now, as you said, there is actually an ad hoc committee of the Northern Ireland Assembly which is considering a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland and to bring forward legislation for that. I mean, uh, what's your understanding of the, the likely progress that that committee can make? Well, I think first of all, we have to, to welcome the fact that momentum has been brought back into the process because, as you know, it, it was really very, very badly stalled. Now, the agreement is very clear that the Bill of Rights is to be delivered at Westminster by the Westminster government. Uh, and there's also a risk that, and I think many would worry that this might become another, if you like, talking shop in relation to this. And, and as you know, there's been many of those along, along the road that haven't actually delivered on this instrument. So I think what, what we really have to do now is to, if you like, create the expectation that this is the final phase this is the phase in which, through the work of this committee and others around this committee, and through the work of civil society, that we finally, after all this time, deliver on the promise of an ambitious Bill of Rights for this region. Now, what has been inspiring much of this move, of course, has been Brexit. And you've been very active in the media talking about Brexit and the fact that human rights have been lost uh, from people, or the perception of human rights, at least, uh, to try and put it in neutral terms, uh, have been lost through the Brexit process. I mean, what human rights do you regard people uh, as having lost through Brexit? Well, I think, for, first of all, we have to frame it with a rather simple point, and that's, you know, many people rightly have not got beyond the fact that we've been taken out of the European Union without our agreement and consent. And I think that remains a major problem for many, and rightly so. Secondly, I think the European Union, while you know, I, nobody, nobody wants to overstate its role, and in many ways, in the work that I've done in the past in relation to refugees and asylum seekers, I've been critical of the work of the European Union. But it's absolutely clear the European Union has been a driver of change across a range of areas, particularly around yeah, equality, employment rights, and those sorts of socioeconomic rights that we've been talking about. I think, although it's complex as to what might work out in practice, that you know we, we'll feel the likely loss of the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the EU, for example. And also, there's the issue of you know the EU agenda going forward. There's a real concern, I think, that you know the Conservative government has historically been quite hostile to human rights. You'll know 
that historically it was talking about repealing and replacing the Human Rights Act. Uh, in the latest manifesto, it's talking about updating the Human Rights Act. So there's a real anxiety and worry that the UK is planning to go backwards in relation to rights, that there'll be you know, undercutting of those rights, particularly in those basic areas of equality, employment, socioeconomic justice, that people are really concerned about here. So I think those are major, major concerns. That's why you know that, you know, part of the conversation that's been happening out there is that, you know, there is an option for people to return to the European Union, to return, if you like, to sort of full fat membership of the European Union with all the rights, opportunities and benefits that will then flow from that. Now, one of the challenges we have is that Brexit and also the discussion about human rights is being seen by many as a proxy for the questions around identity. I mean, you mentioned the fact that there's cross-community support for human rights. I know that there's been sections of loyalism that have been very engaged and supportive of a declaration of greater human rights within Northern Ireland. But there is a problem, isn't there, that it is seen yet again as one of these identity issues. Well, I think we live in a, a complex, sophisticated and divided society, right? So a Bill of Rights has to be crafted and it has to take root in the context of the society we, we live in. So I think what was neglected about the advice that the Commission gave in 2008 is that the Commission worked very hard to both recognise there are issues around culture and identity here that need to be protected, but they need to be wrapped around with broader human rights protections. And I still think the work uh, needs to underline and we need to just keep pointing out what I know can seem like an obvious point to many people. If we enact a Bill of Rights for this society, it, it won't be a Bill of Rights for Paul Gosling or it won't be a Bill of Rights for Colin Harvey. It won't be for one individual. It won't be for one political party. It won't be for one community. It'll be a Bill of Rights for everyone. The clue to human rights, and I know you know it's said again and again and again, the clue to human rights is in the title. Those rights will protect everyone here. And you know, I've often, like others, made the argument that unionists and loyalists, you know, should work with the language of human rights. Those rights are for everyone here. A Bill of Rights will protect but it could be said that uh, a Bill of Rights is, a, is against the grain of the UK Constitution and against the grain of the, the politics of the United Kingdom. I mean, and do you recognise that that is a challenge? There's a challenge in relation to that, yes. But I think there's widespread recognition here, and I think it was reflected very strongly in the Brexit debate, that there are clear differences in relation to this society you know what is the agreement about what are the arrangements that we have here about if they're not recognition that we have particular needs and there are particular promises here that need to be delivered you know in one sense you know the direction of travel within the uk constitution itself in the last 20 years has been a much more pluralist direction you know you've seen much more differentiated responses and outcomes around the UK. So I would say that a Bill of Rights actually would be very much in keeping with that. You know, Scotland is, is taking its own mind in relation to these issues. Wales, 
as well. And I think there's absolutely nothing standing in the way of Northern Ireland taking its own mind in relation to the human rights protections it wants to see, particularly as it's such an embedded aspect of the Good Friday Agreement. So I just really urge people to, to join that conversation. There will, of course, be differences of view. There'll be disagreements. We all know what those are. But look, let's let's get this done. Let's see this as a final phase where we deliver a Bill of Rights that will protect everyone. And some of those guarantees may be important given where this place is likely to go in the decade ahead as well. What I'm suggesting though, Colin, is in a sense perhaps this was one of the unspecified issues around Brexit, that the European that the United Kingdom has a tradition of an unwritten constitution, whereas European Union countries tend to have more of a codified and specified constitution underpinning the way they, their politics works. And perhaps that's one of the tensions between the UK and EU countries. I think that's right. Obviously, you know, without going into the you know, British constitutional tradition, but it's, 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 it's a flexible constitutional arrangement with all the, the advantages and, and significant disadvantages that come with that. But I think, again, our agreement, given its, you know, its relational nature, you know, it embraced relationships around these islands. It wasn't just an internal settlement within Northern Ireland, but most importantly, it held out a number of promises for everyone here that this would be, you know, if you like, a better society. But you're right, it did reflect a sort of different version of constitutionalism, the Good Friday Agreement, and that's always been a sort of tense and difficult aspect mm. of the outworkings of the peace process. But again, I think now that we have this ad hoc committee, really, I, th I think we need to just take the opportunity to revisit the conversation, dust off the work that's been done, and see if we can get there, see if we can finally deliver this project that will, in the end, benefit everyone in this society. And just to re reiterate the point, Bill of Rights conversation, human rights don't belong to one community, they don't belong to an individual, and they don't belong to a political party, they belong to everyone here. Um, to, to look internationally, what impact have Bill of Rights type um, underpinning from legislation made to, to, to people's lives? Can you point to examples in countries where that has actually significantly improved people's lives? I think there's two things there, and it's a good point to make, and I suppose a springboard into another conversation. One is that we've seen things like uh, in South Africa, for example, where a Bill of Rights has been adopted, where that's been a significant and important constitutional milestone. But a Bill of Rights in itself will not necessarily deliver all the changes that want that you want to see. As you know, looking around the world comparatively and historically, there have been countries around the world with the most marvellous constitutions, with the wonderful legal protections for human rights, but they're, they're, they're meaningless in practice. So I would say what the Bill of Rights for here is only the starting point. We then need to build on the culture of rights that are here already. We need to see those realized in practice. So I'm not, and in no sense, would be offering an argument for a Bill of Rights or Human Rights Protections as the end point of the conversation. And they won't in themselves resolve many of the pressing issues that face this society, but they provide a framework for doing so. They provide a guarantee that issues around healthcare, housing, employment are regarded as basic human rights but you're right they're only the starting point you only have to look at 
the challenges that a country like South Africa still faces to realise that they're not the answer in themselves, but they're the start of the answer. Because it is also very much about culture and political discourse and the quality of the conversation that happens within the political sphere. Yeah, and it's also about more specific legislation and the areas that we've talked about building on some of those promises. So, you know, human rights instruments are not the end of the conversation. I also wouldn't overestimate the role of law and lawyers in this either. You know, it's fundamentally important that we have politicians, political parties, civil society actors that are fully signed up and committed to making some of those changes in, in the real world that are committed to delivering an equal society because very often it's that politics that drives legal change, you know, and if you don't have that culture of an active civil society, of politicians and political parties who are delivering this in practice, then some of those promises turn out to be meaningful, no matter how robust they are legally. And, and this really is my final question to you, Colin. Yeah. I mean, what difference would a Bill of Rights make to people's lives in Northern Ireland if it came out the way that you wanted it to come out? First of all, I think it gives people a secure recognition that these are not issues of discretion and whim. They're actually basic human rights that people have and guarantees. And I think I wouldn't underestimate the importance of that. Secondly, however, it's how it will be used in practice. And I, again, I would underline that it will only make a difference to people's lives if the Bill of Rights that we adopt is an ambitious Bill of Rights. It isn't just a sort of tweak to the Human Rights Act. It's something that reflects an ambitious vision for this society and that it's something that's used in practice that people are able to access justice in an affordable way, that they can use these rights, that public authorities mainstream these protections in the work that they do in a preventative way, that the executive and the assembly takes these measures seriously in their work so that we're not always depending on going to court to enforce rights, but that politicians take these on board and into account in their daily work and ministers and others as well. So, you know, I just underline that, look, I'm... I wouldn't be somebody offering a Bill of Rights or Human Rights Protections as the answer to all the problems of this society and the problems that we face. They're just the starting point. They need to be used. They need to be mainstreamed. And the Bill of Rights that we craft and in the advice of the Human Rights, uh, Human Rights Commission for 2008, there are examples of there and ways in which you can encourage the political system and public authorities to take all this uh, more seriously. But ultimately, I think we need a Bill of Rights. We need those guarantees. We need those underwritten in law. But it's only a start of a, of a bigger journey, I think, in the society about realising those things in practice. Because one of the things you don't want to do is you don't want to hold out promises to people that end up being meaningless on, on the ground. So it's only the start. It's only the beginning. Colin, thank you very much indeed. Okay, thanks to Colin for that wide-reaching conversation on human rights there. Paul, I picked up a, a really interesting thing around identity, the, and yourself and Colin talked about it there, around the perception of human rights maybe belonging to one community rather than the other, but that was addressed by Colin. That's right, and, and of course that's why we've got the, the, the pair of conversations uh, with another mm. one coming up next week, because there is this sense that, you know, are rights only for Catholics, nationalists, Republicans? To what extent 
do loyalists and unionists share the same view about the need for for rights um and so yeah it has got confused with the conversation around identity and protecting identity and promoting different uh, identities so yes uh, this does become contentious it's certainly one of the reasons why a bill of rights has become such a contentious issue yeah colin goes on to point out that it's not going to be the be all and end all it's going to be a really important basis and a framework for change but it necessary a bill of rights itself won't necessarily bring about change that's right um and it, it is very much about a starting point for us to talk about what type of society we want and it's an interesting question to what extent since the good friday agreement have we had that wide-ranging discussion about what we expect a government to provide what we expect in terms of a basic provision within a welfare state and perhaps some of these contentious issues have been put on hold because we don't want to make things worse and perhaps mm. you know perhaps what we are doing with these podcasts is bringing out some of the issues that are hidden away a bit uh, because people don't want to cause conflict but maybe some of these things don't have to be regarded as difficult conflicts but do actually need to be discussed openly and honestly and 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 the positive thing about this Jared of course is that the the assembly is now dealing with the question of bill of rights it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to get one now but at mm. the very least we've got a committee in the Northern Ireland assembly which is looking at the detail of the bill of rights and and yes you're absolutely right going back to your point you know that it is a starting point to consider what our rights and how we move our society forward yeah and and as Colin would say he hopes we're on the final stretch now the work of this committee has started up again well yeah it's a long time waiting though isn't it the 2008 commission so yeah um it's a, it's a long journey yeah it is well okay well that's it for this episode thanks to Colin for taking the time to meet with Paul and um, thanks to Paul for doing the interview and to Emer Doherty for production support as always thanks to our funders the Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland through their media grant scheme and remember to subscribe and share and look out for future episodes wherever you download your podcast from chat to you soon Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.